Hello everyone, this is Beth Paul, and I am sharing a special bonus episode of the Prez Paul podcast. What a first week of 2021 it has been. This week, I share with you the audio from a virtual forum for the Nazareth community that we held on Thursday, January 7th. It was a way to connect with faculty, staff, and students to reflect on the events that unfolded at the Capitol on January 6th. I'm joined by Tim Neeland, Nazareth Professor of History and Political Science, Devparna Roy, Nazareth Assistant Professor of Sociology, and Anna Gomez-Parga, Assistant Professor in English and Communication. The Nazareth community engaged via Zoom with thought-provoking comments and questions for the panelists. As you reflect on what has transpired, I hope you'll find this to be thought-provoking and helpful. Our community denounces the violence and lawlessness of yesterday's events. We condemn ignorance and hatred, bigotry and white supremacy. And we must face that yesterday's events exemplify a deeper flaw in our democracy. We've never achieved the ideal of democracy, a fully inclusive democracy. Democracy is for all. So we come together in community today to feel, to reflect, to process what we have witnessed, to listen to the array of perspectives in our community, to learn together about ways that we as individuals and also as a community can act upon our founding values to develop that inclusive democracy. This is an open discussion. None of us has all the answers. We all have different feelings and thoughts. We all have a lot of questions. We all care. I am very grateful to Dr. Tim Neelan, Dr. Devparna Roy, and Dr. Anna Gomez-Parga for helping to facilitate and inform our forum today. And I'm also very thankful to the marketing and communication team for getting this forum up and running in a flash. With that, I'll turn it to you, Tim. Thank you so much for facilitating today. And Beth, thanks for your leadership on this. It's really important that we do have these opportunities to come together in the moment um, and, and to provide some sort of context and perspective. And so what I'm going to do is now I'm going to ask Anna to start and then uh, we'll go to Dev Parna to introduce themselves and to talk a little bit about their own professional and personal response to the events of yesterday. So Anna, would you be willing to start us out on that? Hey everybody, I am Dr. Ana Gomez-Parga. I am um, located in the Department of English and Communication, but I represent the Communication and Media Program. And what we're seeing right now is the importance of social media, the importance of language, the importance of stories, the importance of narratives, and just how far words can get you, right? We are truly seeing um, without I mean, it's, the evidence is clear that we have to address these issues and that what we say has an impact. Um, I came to this country eight years ago. I am still not a citizen of this country. I have no political power in the sense that I have no say in terms of voting. Um, I've been sitting back observing what's been happening, but I just want to address very briefly three points that I can think of. And again, I apologize because I constantly tell my students the importance of practicing, especially for communicating perfectly. Um, but as you know, this was, this is our reaction kind of in the moment. Um, so with that in mind, 
the first thing I want to say is that narratives matter. I listened to the vice president yesterday, and it was disappointing to hear him say things like, this is, this is not who we are. I think that it's very important that we finally acknowledge that this is who we are, that this is the country that we are experiencing, that 75 million people are not a minority, that we have a problem, that we have structural real problems that don't depend on who's in office or who gets voted out, that we have to begin to address institutional and structural issues. So I think that's the first takeaway that I have. Um, number two, narratives matter. I hear people on social media, because I've been, again, this is part of my work. This is where I work. This is what I do for a living. Um, this is not new. This is not surprising. This is not something that just happened out of the blue. And this is certainly not something that's been happening for the last four years. This is just a culmination of multiple factors. And going off of my first point, this is where we are because we haven't addressed the structure. And number three, checking privilege matters. I also heard Nancy Pelosi saying things like her colleagues in Congress are now traumatized based on what happened yesterday. And I almost wanted to call and ask her, how do you think black people feel in this country? How do you think Hispanic and indigenous people feel in this country? How do you think I feel when I see people who look like myself being caged at the border and I get to be here with a permit that says that I can work? How do you think that, um, that traumatize a person? How do you think black boys feel, black girls feel? when they can trust the police officers. So if we're going to start talking about trauma, let's not start by who experienced trauma yesterday. Let's start by who's been traumatized for years because we failed them. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and that's a, a good spot for us to continue our conversations about how this is a culmination. It wasn't just a one day event. Um, Dev Parna, would you be willing to introduce yourself and um, to offer us your reflections? Sure. Thank you, Dr. Neelan. Thank you, Dr. Beth Paul and all the organizers of this flash forum. I am Devparna Roy. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology. I have trained as a sociologist. The events of yesterday at the US Capitol building in Washington, DC, will go down in history as one of the most unfortunate incidents in the history of democracy in the United States. People are still uncovering information about what exactly happened yesterday. I hope we have a much clearer picture of yesterday's events in the coming days and months. Based on the information I have seen and read so far, I think we can safely assume that it was a MAGA or Make America Great Again mob that stormed the US Capitol building yesterday. Most of the members of this mob were white males from working class backgrounds. Reflecting on yesterday's events, three questions have occurred to me. First, why is there such rage and anger among a section of white Americans about President Trump's losing the November 2020 elections? Second, what can others, and this includes those white Americans who are not part of the MAGA group, do about the situation? What are our specific responsibilities? 
Third, does democracy in the United States have the institutional capacity to withstand such onslaughts? Regarding the open display of anger and violence by the MAGA mob, I think it is important to pay attention to the impacts of globalization, deindustrialization, deunionization, and outsourcing on the vanishing fortunes of the American working class. These processes have impoverished the working class, which includes both blacks, whites, and Hispanics, and others. When you add the white victimhood narrative to the reality of increasing poverty rates, you have the exponential growth of white nationalism among certain white groups. Instead of creating a rainbow coalition of all those who are suffering because of the increasing socioeconomic inequality, instead of creating a multiracial coalition of the poor and the wretched, something that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. tried to build in the 1960s, and something that Reverend William Barber and Reverend William Liz Theo Harris are trying to generate now. You have siloed understandings and siloed groups of identity warriors. Each racial or ethnic group thinks it is totally alone in this quest for money, status, and power, and tries to march by itself. Some groups feel lonelier than others. I think as educated and responsible individuals, we have a special responsibility to break down what the renowned Berkeley sociologist, Ali Russell Hochschild, calls the empathy wall. Hochschild defines the empathy wall as an obstacle to the deep understanding of another person, one that can make us feel indifferent or even hostile to those who hold different views or those whose childhood is rooted in different circumstances. Hochschild, herself a liberal-minded sociology professor from an affluent class background in Northern California, had to recognize the large gap between her life world and the circumstances of very conservative-minded people in rural Louisiana. In her remarkable 2016 book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, Hochschild explains how she transcended the empathy wall to understand the deep story of small town conservatives in the American South. The narrative or deep story that fuels anger, rage, and mourning among rural conservatives is that they are getting left behind. They are unfairly losing out in a race where the liberal politicians such as President Obama are deliberately helping affluent non-whites, women, and LGBTQ plus people win the race. Hochschild argues that this particular deep story explains why American conservatives voted in anti-establishment, non-liberal politicians to power in the 2016 elections. The question I have for liberals in America and everywhere, and I include myself in their number, is whether we can create an all-inclusive narrative that will accomplish two goals. First, can we bring back class-centered analysis to American politics without losing sight of other kinds of marginalizations that intersect with class, such as those due to race, ethnicity, gender, and sexuality? Second, can we bring back an emphasis on civil disobedience, nonviolence, and peaceful protest in the tradition of Henry David Thoreau and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? I hope that we all recognize that winning elections is not enough in a democracy. We need to reflect the consensus of beliefs, opinions, 
and principles. We need to stop othering and demonizing those with whom we disagree. In scaling the empathy wall between herself and the conservatives, Ali Hochschild was not just trying to better understand the progenitors of the alt-right, she was also trying to understand herself better. We could even say that each one of us has at least two selves within us, one liberal and one conservative, one Republican and one Democrat, one left-wing and the other right-wing. The quest to bring about peace between warring selves within oneself is tied to the quest to create peace between different groups in our society. I would like to end on a hopeful note. Yesterday, the American lawmakers deliberately and courageously took up their work again at about 8 p.m. This is a sign of the resilience of American democracy. In the days to come, I hope we will see more signs of the strength and deep roots of American democracy as each one of us plays our role in strengthening the institutions of democracy in our society. I wish you all a safe and healthy 2021 as we work together to usher in a more democratic society. Thank you all. Thank you, Deb Parna. And, and there's so much in there that I hope that we'll be able to unpack and that uh, we'll get some questions. Certainly, um, one of the reasons we're having a forum is we would really like to have you send your questions to the chat moderator. So if you have specific kind of questions or some sort of um, response of your own that you'd like us to reflect on, please feel free to send those to the chat moderator. Um, and that is um, that would be really helpful. Um, you know, as you're doing that or formulating your questions, uh, my own response to this comes from uh, my uh, background, a, a history political science professor at Nazareth College. Um, and as we think about you know, the long history of race baiting and um, demagoguery, this is not un unknown in America. I mean, we find it throughout American history, uh, throughout the uh, 18th, 19th, and 20th, and 21st century. But what made yesterday, I think, such a moment where people um, had an intake of breath and were astonished was that, in general, the um, unleashing of this has not been done directly by a president of the United States against another co-equal branch of government, which was, of course, the Congress. And the purpose of this mob um, attack or assault was, in fact, to stop or intimidate or in some way in their own fantasy to overturn the results of the 2020 election because they have come to believe, because the president has told them to believe this, that in fact somehow the election was stolen uh, from the president. Um, that of course is what makes this um, uh, worthy of our uh, attention and why questions have come up already. Should we invoke the 25th amendment, which would uh, lead to either the Congress appointing a special commission and the majority of which would recommend that the president be temporarily removed from office until they are uh, capable of serving or to have members of the cabinet, the majority of the cabinet, uh, to sign off that the president is no longer capable of uh, completing their duties. The problem with both of that is that it, it may in fact um, only inflame the fantasies of um, the alt-right. Uh, I think uh, more appropriate would be for um, a, a impeachment proceedings and 
a, he, a, a trial and removal of the president, because that would force Republicans who yesterday, many of whom themselves felt their lives threatened by this mob, um, to have to come forward. Certainly, we know that there's enough votes in the House for impeachment. Um, certainly, there is uh, no doubt a credible array of evidence that the president uh, directed the mob to go to the Capitol uh, and that embedded in a variety of different comments by the president um, were comments that were hostile and violent. But furthermore, the president's hesitation to call out the National Guard to protect uh, and secure um, the federal property and to protect the lives of those people in there, reporters, staff, and members of the legislature, um, it certainly uh, shows a failure to, to do their duty. Um, and, uh, you know, finally, uh, a trial and removal with the election of two, and this was overshadowed by yesterday, the election of two Democrats from Georgia, one, the first African-American male ever to be elected to uh, the Senate from Georgia was remarkable. Also, the youngest man elected since Joe Biden took office back in 1973, the Democrats would certainly have uh, the votes. But I think more to the point, I think there would be Republicans who would vote uh, for removal after the actions of the president yesterday. Why would we do that? What would it serve? There's only two weeks left, people have asked. Well, my concern is not just for the present, but the future. And I think that these kind of actions um, that we saw yesterday, we have to, as a people, say that we will not tolerate that. And we have a constitutional means to do so. Um, certainly, um, it would be controversial, and I, I doubt very much that the same fantasists who believe that somehow their election or their country has been stolen from them uh, would respond. But I think the American people would feel a sense of justice and restoration of the foundations of democracy. And so um, certainly would be happy to take um, more questions about, uh, about that as well. I want to talk a little bit about uh are, are um, moving further and further away from a notion of truth or a notion of fact. Um, and, you know, I, that it's been happening for a number of years. I, I think there are all sorts of perspectives on how and why. Um, but it seems to me that in this incidence, you know, what we've been leading up to um, untruths and misinformation has been a major part of this and has been uh, become a, a really vicious tool of manipulation. Um, can you comment a little bit about that? Can I take this, Tim? Please. Yes, I was going to say Anna. You're the social media <laughs> expert, please. Um, so I think there are a couple of things. And again, we can spend hours talking about this. But to start um, with these, I think we should move away from the notion that they started four years ago. And I think that's crucial. Um, I think we also need to stop pathologizing and saying these people, there's something wrong with them because somebody tells them that that's fine. There's nothing wrong with them. There's a process that we've mm -hmm. studied and documented in media studies, in propaganda studies, in discourse studies, in psychology. There is a process. This has been brewing. When it comes to truth, fact, perception, we have to also, and I say this as an academic, we have to face the truth and acknowledge that we also have failed the public. And how did we fail the public? Well, to start with, we made science unavailable by complicating language, 
by becoming so committed to just talk to ourselves, by treating the audience as if they were dumb, by not talking to them in words that they would understand so that they can understand how a research method works and how vaccines work, for instance. We also have to face a reality that for a long time, we have caused so much damage. Mm. Doctors have caused so much damage to marginalized communities. So if there is distrust, you can find evidence that tells you that your distrust is granted. So we have to also face that and be honest with ourselves. We also have to understand that the media has been corrupted for decades. One of the things I tell my students in my own classes, and I know there are some of them here, um, is that you have to understand that media is a business first. This idea that the media is here to inform and educate us, it's never been real. They're here to make a profit as any business is. So we have to develop critical skills. We have to develop other skills to be able to discern the information that we're given. Now, if we look at education and academia, go to pre um, to all the education that happens before college. If you tell people that what they think is more important that the experiences of black students, that the experiences of indigenous students, if you keep lying to them about how this country was founded, if these people eventually find themselves in a position where they cannot find jobs and somebody shows up and tells them it's because they're taking their jobs, they're more likely to believe that because we have not been educating them. So this problem involves all of us in our classrooms, in our classes, and we also have to face I remember in 2016, we were talking about how dumb people who supported Trump were. They're not dumb. And I wanna emphasize this. There are 75 million people who voted to reelect him. And these are not people who have some sort of learning disability. These are not people who have been pathologized. These are people that work in this society that has been telling them that there is enough evidence or perception to justify their narratives. Thank you so much. That, that I find that very, very inspiring. Thank you. I, we've got a couple of other questions. Um, Tim, I think this one's for you. Since there, were only, there are only two weeks left, is there time for impeachment? And would this prevent Trump from running again in the future? Ah, well, um, that's, that's, that's two questions. So I will answer the first one, which is, um, is there enough time? Well, absolutely. As I as I, we're sitting here, at least three or four Democrats have already begun circulating petitions for impeachment. Uh, the only thing that would slow the process down would, of course, be on the Senate side, which uh, would hold the trial. But again, with the uh, addition of two new uh, Democrats, uh, there will be a 50-50 balance, and the um, and and power is going to shift to the Democrats and Chuck Schumer will be the majority leader. So is there enough time? And even if, even if this occurred on the 19th of January, but Americans made a statement about this kind of um, constitutional behavior, again, I, I need to stress, there is not one branch of government. The president is not in charge of the country. The president is a servant of the people. The Congress is the only place where you see the words, the, the people are, we the people, in order to form our perfect union, and we talk about the House of Representatives. The rest of that is, you know, it's, it's about other structures. So I think there has to be an accountability for that. Um, and so uh, I think that's clearly uh, an, an issue uh, that needs to be dealt with. 
Um, would it not allow him to run for office? Removal from office does not necessarily, but um, also look, there could also be trials for the president of the former president of the United States. They were gonna put Nixon on trial for what he did in office. Why would Trump be any better? No president is above the law. And if they have broken the law, then they need to be held accountable to it. Um, and that I think is basic civics um, and also a, a means of leveling um, power is to hold the, the, the highest and most elite the same standards that we would hold to the poorest and the weakest. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. You know, another person wrote in um, that they saw pictures where the alt-right had hung nooses outside and wondered um, whether this was a racially charged attack. What, what was the purpose of this? Any comments on that? Deparna, do you want to talk about this from a sociological perspective? Yes, definitely. So I do think it was a racially charged attack. Uh, as I have talked about Adi Russell Hochschild's book on the study of white nationalism, it was clearly a MAGA mob that was attacking. But we also need to understand the class basis of this mob. And I'm looking forward to more excavation of who exactly were these people. We know about uh, the person, Ms. Babbitt, who was killed yesterday in the Capitol, a veteran. A libertarian, a Trump supporter, and um, we don't know enough about her socioeconomic status or class background, but I can safely assume that she was not part of the affluent class, which often are Democrats. They can be Republicans too. So a better understanding of MAGA mobs being created, while I fully agree with Ana Gomez Parga on the point that we need to understand uh, why people are reacting in this way because of the way they are being taught history in schools and colleges. We also need to understand that there's something to do with scapegoating minorities, as Anna was pointing out. It's just easy to scapegoat minorities, uh, especially immigrants and people of color, when you don't have the education to understand the 400, 500 years of history that went into creating America or the United States, that helps. So how do we reverse decades of education, misinformation and miseducation, maleducation, and how do we create a sense of understanding when people that, we, that might lead to the collapse of capitalism as we know it? That brings up another point. Capitalism has become so central to American identity in the last 40 years, especially, that we are afraid of turning to a more socialist kind of government or economy. And we need to kind of wean ourselves away from capitalism, especially a trickle-down economy. But it is very difficult to talk about these things in the media, in the classrooms, or anywhere. So that's my two cents. Thank you, Deborah. Anna, do, would you uh, want to respond to that this, uh, as we talk about structural racism and white supremacy uh, and white privilege? Yeah, so um, one of, uh, as Deb is talking about, the decline of capitalism, I 
I would like to add that capitalism has always been founded on the idea of exploitation, right? Um, I think what we're seeing now is that white people are being exploited too. Um, so it was always the, the wealth that the United States has accumulated over the years has been based on the exploitation of other countries, specifically third world countries um, and people of color. So I think that what we're seeing now is that that disenfranchisement finally get into a, a good portion of, of white people and people being angry about it. Um, I read somewhere in one of the books recently that um, that's the system that's failing, but it's been failing for a lot of us for, for longer, right? When it comes to, to those images that we saw in Washington um, that specifically um, reference lynching in the United States, in communication, we have been saying that we're living in a time where fear is a message. Um, I'm a scholar from Mexico, as some of you know, and we saw these with the cartels. Um, these, this way of imagery uh, of symbolic violence, it's there to send a message. And the message is you either adapt to this narrative um, and, and you, you assimilate to what we want as a country, or this is what can happen to you. And, and I think that if we put together that image along with police not doing anything, right? Um, it sends a very powerful message if you are not white. No, great. And, and I would agree. I would say that, look, we have a long history uh, in this country of nooses being used as a tool of intimidation uh, against people of color. And to, um, to, to uh, you know, ig ignore that, uh, you know, in, in these clips. Um, I, on the other side is the counter narrative that you may already be hearing. I'm not sure if, if you've heard um, already the alt-right is spinning that this was an Antifa. Um, there was a group of people who, I know you're laughing, but mm. do, I mean, this is the, this is where you have to understand that even as we, we, we sit here talking about this, people are spinning through the media, through the uh, conservative talk radio, through the social media mechanism, um, these counter narrative versions of what happened. And so even as we, we, we deal with this, it's very difficult for um, some people to grasp uh, the reality that um, you know, group A sees one thing and group B sees another. Um, we're not in a gestalt experiment though. <laughs> we're not looking at it, but in a way we are. We're looking at two different societies. And what we're really looking at here is the, um, the need for greater education um, in ways that we haven't done before as Anna and, and Deparna have talked about in terms of class, in terms of identity, in terms of exploitation and capitalism, but also in, in terms of critical thinking, um, which again, that's the one thing as we, we meet our students, we are always emphasizing, yes, that's an idea, but now you have to step out of that idea and you have to re-examine it. And you have to be able to do that if you wanna be able to negotiate the world around us because it's very complex. And the world has always been full of lies but the sophistication of lies now makes it much harder with deep fakes and other things. And so we have a lot of work ahead of us um, uh, in order to uh, attempt to um, create a, a more true narrative. I'm always in search of the truth. Uh, I don't know that I will get there, but I will continue to pursue that. Um, Can I add something? Yes. Um, I think something that we are missing and it's crucial for change is accountability. I think that spinning narratives works only for certain populations because of a lack of accountability. 
I think that if you look at, and I can give you several examples, if you look at sexual harassment in campuses, right, it only works for men because they've been able to get away with it. If you look at white people being able to spin the narrative about their protests, it's because there's never been, there was not accountability for them yesterday. Um, so people who are at the top, the dominant group, and by dominant, I mean people who have access to media and have access to all these things, right? They get to spin narratives however they want to. There is this saying that says that history was, been, was written by the winners, right? Um, and uh, there's another place, I can't remember it, but the, the hunting would be a different story, the lion get to write it, right? Um, so I think that this is what we're seeing, exactly. So when I think about colleges and I think about students painfully explaining their, their racialized experiences, their sexual assault experiences, and for them to not have justice served, right? And for a perpetrator to say, oh, I didn't mean that. I mean, I'm sure that was racist, but I didn't mean it, and then spin it something else. That's where the lack of accountability comes from, and you can see it everywhere. So again, we have been sending a message consistently in K-12, in college, in the news, that there are people who are accountable and there are people who get to get away with things, right? And that's where we are. It's a result of all of that. It's not the result of one person. Definitely not. I agree. And, but to be optimistic, uh, the Me Too uh, movement was um, an incredible response, which used social media to hold uh, accountable people that had been getting away with some of the most egregious uh, uh, crimes um, uh, you can imagine. Now, obviously, it, it was imperfect. Everything has been imperfect. But um, I, I do think that we, we can hold people accountable. And um, certainly, it, it would be great to see equal time and the fairness doctrine once again restored. The rise of the alt-right conservative talk radio came in the 1980s when the FCC stripped some of these requirements away. These are public airwaves. Uh, and not, uh, and therefore should be used for the public good. But now there's no counter narrative uh, for people who tune in to these radio shows and one host uh, after the other tries to outdo each other with being even more extreme and weaving these tapestries of conspiracy um, uh, about them. And, and look, we, we are a conspiratorial nation, I get that. We were founded by a group of people who were sure the British were coming to get them, and I'm not sure they really were, but that's okay. We, we talk about that in, in class, but, but to have that still kind of mentality today is troubling and, and vexing, and it's not going to allow to, for equity um, and uh, uh, equal rights. So um, I will stop talking now and uh, let go back to the let me um, go back to, we, we, we're starting to have quite a few questions, so this is great. I've got another, uh, a couple of more questions about um, the mechanics of this time, and then I really do want to turn to uh, several questions that are coming in about what, what can we do. Um, so another question about uh, Trump. If there's no consequence for Trump over the next two weeks, could we be put in danger, nuclear warfare, other war, and would he have the power to do so, or would there be oversight to stop him? I think we're all afraid of what he might do in the coming weeks if he's allowed to stay in office. Can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just I'll start, and then Anna and, and Deb Parna, if you want to uh, come along. Um, 
generally, we, we, we have talked about the institutional safeguards that have protected our democracy and the layers of uh, institutions and other things that have um, restrained um, the ability of the occupant of the White House who has, yes, the codes and other things. Um, the, um, the ability of the president, though, to move generals in and out or to, um, you know, uh, as commander in chief, to make troop movements um, has been a, a concern in American literature for a long time. Um, I don't know that we're in as much peril as you might think, but I do think that that's an argument for removal of the occupant of the uh, the current occupant of the Oval Office, because in fact, um, the institutional restraints that we used to have party, uh, other branches of government uh, seem not to be something that is um, of interest to the current president of the United States who wants to do things on their own. And again, what people were arguing is, you know, um, Trump forever or Trump 2024 or Trump 2020. That is, that is, it is the cult of personality, and that is something that democracies cannot survive. And what the founders tried to create um, uh, shared power or uh, co equal branches of government. But I think we may have lost that in the last 50 years, and I think that's an argument for removal. Um, Anna, do you want to comment or get part of I could go. So basically, I heard it from a reliable source this morning that President Nixon was in fact prevented from accessing any of the pro problematic situations like uh, uh, access to nuclear courts by Henry Kissinger. The question is, do we have somebody as capable as Henry Kissinger in the staff today? So I think there may be a real concern, for example, with Iran and nuclear weapons. Uh, let's see what the next two weeks bring us. That's all. That's a great point. And an additional related question, how does presidential immunity tie into this? Can Trump be prosecuted after he leaves office? Uh, absolutely. Um, presidents are citizens when they return uh, and they can be prosecuted for crimes committed uh, well in the Oval Office. And by the way, you cannot be pardoned for treason. So um, if the charge, if William Barr um, charged the president with treason tomorrow, even as a sitting president, they don't have the kind of immunity from committing a high crime and misdemeanor. So um, there's a variety of different mechanisms that um, the president would face uh, for um, his role in the destruction uh, and intimidation, harassment, um, and of course, uh, attempted insurrection yesterday. Yeah, thank you. So shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that I observed was the difference in the response to what happened yesterday to other, um, other protests that we have seen. And um, so someone writes in, I saw videos that the mob was let through the barricade by police officers and also they were found taking selfies with police. Are these reports true? And I'd like it if we discussed more the different ways police handled the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and the comment just disappeared. Anna, you'd be perfect. Versus yesterday's mob. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, so I think um, in argumentation, we, we try to warn people um, about false equivalencies. 
I think that it's a mistake to say that Black Lives Matter is the same as the protests that happened yesterday. It's not the same. Black Lives Matter is a movement that's been fighting for lives um, against injustice. Injustices that have been documented, videotaped, recorded, um, shared through social media. Um, culturally, we know that an entire group of people educate their children and have the talk because of these kinds of injustices. So it's not the same. What happened yesterday was the result of entitlement and the result of, of many other things, but it was not a fight for justice and it was not a fight against injustice and certainly not against oppression. So let's make that distinction clear. Number two, when it comes to accountability, um, the videos, I saw the videos too, um, they seem real. The, the flags were there and I was following the news as well. Um, apparently it was true that the police officer opened the barricades for people to come in. Um, but I, I'm doubtful that this was just a hesitation. There, there's something very intentional about having the National Guard a day before you expect marches and then having marches happening in real time and not having anybody show up. I don't, I don't think this is a kind of country to do that kind of thing accidentally. Um, so that's, th those are my, my perceptions, Tim. No, that's a good, good point. Step Parna, do you want to comment on any of this? But uh, I would like to bring up another point. What if the police had, this is a counterfactual, so there are no clear answers. What if the police had dealt with the protesters, the mob yesterday, with equal force as they did with the George Floyd incident protesters. What would have happened? Any comments on that? Sure, I, I, I think I think your your comments are well made and it's a question of equivalency, right? It's it's a question of uh, of the difference. And and again, the, the all right argument is that that what happened yesterday is somehow equivalent to those um, individuals who during some of the protests last summer uh, committed arson, uh, vandalized property, or uh, smashed windows and, and stole things. Um, those are crimes. Um, what we saw yesterday was an attack on the Constitutional. It was treason. Um, it's a very different uh, level uh, and had the, had the police and the National Guard uh, been there uh, and uh, unleashed tear gas, etc. Uh, to keep the mob out. Um, uh, I think certainly um, that would have been um, uh, something that most Americans would have looked at um, and said, well, they were threatening the constitutional order and the, the work of Congress. The Congress, Congress's work is so sacrosanct that in Article 1, Section 7, I should point out, it says that a member of Congress, unless they're like committing a uh, flagrant crime cannot be stopped on their way to go deliberate and that no one can question a member of the legislature for their comments that they make on the floor of the House or Senate. And, and therefore, what happened yesterday was, uh, again, an attempt to overturn the Constitution. Now, granted, we, we, we live in a country where people don't read the Constitution. Um, privileged, unprivileged, alienated, not alienated. People don't know what's in the Constitution. Half the time when people say they're gonna cite the Constitution to me, they cite the Declaration of Independence, which is a lovely document, but it has no power. It is not the law of the land. Or, or the Pledge of Allegiance, lovely, but has nothing to do with the constitutional order. And so therefore, um, this question of equivalency keeps coming up. And it's part of that counter narrative that I think we all need to, to be aware of and that we need to have some sort of response to 
which is why I'm glad we're having this, this forum and this discussion to deal with these, these questions. Um, thanks. I would like to add um, that it also goes beyond the Constitution. So we also have witnessed cases where it is your constitutional right to have a gun in your car for self-protection. And yet when you are stopped by police um, and you try to say that you have a legal weapon with you, you get shot. Um, so again, the Constitution applies for some people and not to others, right? And when it comes to how different their reactions would have been, well, I watched the news yesterday, I stayed up very late, and after Congress came back to continue the discussion, there was a minute of silence for the woman who lost her life. I have not seen that for the hundreds of people who have lost their lives during the Black Lives Matter protests. So there's a clear difference here of how we handle things. Everybody is talking about this one person who lost her life. And we are still not willing to engage with all the people who have been tear gassed, arrested, shut because of these protests and why the people are protesting in the same in the in the first place. Yeah, you know, a, a follow up comment on that. Someone wrote in, I think it's worth noting the similarities in the anti quarantine protests that happened in Michigan when an armed militia group stormed the Michigan Capitol and the police reacted. Yeah. Um, I read, here's another comment. Uh, I read that the Dominion voting system and others may be suing some of the alt-right media channels for spreading false claims about election fraud. Could this and additional lawsuits help in shutting down some of the false narratives? Are there other actions that might still allow for free speech but prevent so much misinformation from being so easily spread? Anna, you'd be perfect for, for this. Can you repeat the question? Um, are there, so could, could it, it's a, okay. I read that the Dominion voting system and others may be suing some of the alt-right media channels for spreading false claims about election fraud. Could this and additional lawsuits help in shutting down some of the false narratives? And are there other actions that might still allow for free speech but prevent so much misinformation from being so easily spread? So Tim mentioned, for example, FCC regulations. So I was listening to the director of the MIT um, Media Center earlier today talk about these issues. And here is where I am. So I know that uh, the president had his uh, social media removed for the day, or I know if he's going to be banned uh, for how long, right? And, and how that's the first step. And they were talking about how um, platform companies should have experts come in to, to dictate new rules and, and new laws when it comes to spreading information and, and allowing people to all of that. But I think culturally speaking, we're so used to this sense of immediacy that I'm not sure how that's going to look like. I don't know how people are going to react if all of a sudden you can no longer post automatically, say on Instagram or Facebook or anything else. I think there has been a cultural um, commodification of that sense of immediacy that I don't see it going back. So I don't know how they're going to resolve this issue. When it comes to media, what we've seen is that when you shut something uh, down, something else comes up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's almost like giving an aspirin to a different kind of problem. It's a difficult problem that we're facing. It's, it raises a lot of questions, and I'm not sure I have an answer for that. Yeah, there's another question here. Maybe this is a, a topic for a, a follow-on forum, but there's another question about, you know, how can we ever break the cycle that you're speaking to, Anna? 
you know, what must we do to confront, engage, commit to build a different milieu? And that's certainly a very powerful question. I think, well, I obviously don't have the answers. If I would, I wouldn't be here with you today. <laughs> um, but I think that there are things that we, it's a trial and error. And I think it's important to recognize, number one, when, what Lisa has been doing in the college, uh, pushing this very specific agenda forward with very clear steps of how we move forward. Um, so that that's a great step, a very important step. And I'm so glad that she was able and, and willing to take on that role and to do that what you, Dr. Paul, have been doing in supporting that and continuing to support those kinds of changes in addressing these issues with the right kind of language, with the kind of authority uh, that you have also points in the right direction, right? Um, but I also want to be very clear that as we move forward, we will make mistakes, we will find roadblocks, and we don't, we're not always going to get it right. And I think it's arrogant to believe that if these problems have not been solved in 50 years, we're all of a sudden going to have the answer right now. So I think what we need to look at is that the commitment and, and the actual elements that we haven't been addressing, which is accountability and structure. Thank you for that. I, I, I appreciate that comment. And I um, I also really appreciate the acknowledgement of the of the realities of tackling something like this. It's so easy for someone to say, oh, this is so big, it's beyond us, it's futile, we can't do anything. Well, we can. And I think every every one of us needs to. You know, I I I think of it as a personal responsibility that every single day I'm thinking about how do we move forward? How what what action can we take? What I, I'm trying to be very much more um observant and, um, and really questioning equity gaps and why and, and digging into that. So it's a daily habit forming process. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud to be part of a community that, that takes that very seriously. So here's another, um, here's another related question. The, the moment we say privilege, there are people like 75 million of them who automatically write us off as delusional snowflakes. Some of these people inevitably are our students, members of our community. So how do we open minds and hearts? Maybe so I, I think... can answer that question. Yes. So basically don't use the word privilege on your first meeting with people you think might belong to the other group, which does not like the word white privilege or white supremacy or white nationalism. Uh, I actually have been thinking about a three-pronged approach to changing the situation. First of all, education, K-12, college, university, graduate studies, and beyond. That has to be fundamentally changed. The second is the economy. Uh, as I've talked about, we need to move away from thinking about a trickle-down economy to a more redistributive economy. And the third most difficult step, which kind of goes back to what Anna and President Paul were talking about, is scaling the empathy wall in the language of Ali Russell Hochschild, which is basically have a lunch with, or dinner or just share a coffee with people and then talk about the things you have in common rather than the things that divide you from the other group. So you could, like one thing I was thinking about is that almost everyone who lives in America, American or not, loves the natural beauty of this country. It's, it's beautiful, national parks and seas and oceans and 
mountains and hills and meadows and everything you have here. So why not talk about those things, things that you share in common, music, cuisine. You, we all enjoy cuisine from many different countries, right? Many different ethnic groups. So uh, there's a noted African-American historian, Ture, uh, uh, Adolf Reed and his son, Ture Reed, who actually talk about the difficult steps ahead. And we can only build the road or the path one step at a time. So it's, it's a very long process. If it's taken 500 years to get to January 6, 2020, it will take at least 200 years to come out of this mess. So that's all. So true. And I, I think Anna, it was you earlier that I, I, I thought this was so powerful. You know, as soon as we disagree, we decide that you're not a person anymore, that, that you're not a valued person, that you don't count. And that is just, you know, that so is there, there are work. things um, I don't I don't mean to interrupt you, Dr. Paul, but I, I really wanted to add a, a quick point, um, and I'm not trying to be confrontational confrontational by any means, but I think I have a different perspective than Debs. I think we are experiencing times that require us to to use the, the right language. I think the word privilege is long overdue. I think what we are seeing is white supremacy. I think. What happened yesterday is not privilege, it's supremacy. When you have the police force deciding to not do something or openly or open barricades voluntarily without pressure, I think that's supremacy, that's not privilege. Uh, privilege is being able to not have to think about race. Supremacy is having a police force behind you supporting your cause. And there are ways to appeal to empathy and there are ways to appeal to education and there are ways to sit down and explain why this is supremacy, calling it supremacy. It's in the nuances, it's, it's in the training, it's in the building of a curriculum that addresses these through various lenses in history classes, in literature classes, in communication classes. It's, it's a teamwork, it's collaborative, but I don't think, I think that we tried the, the not calling things things and it didn't work. And we're seeing that now. So I think it is important. That's the value of language. That, that's the importance of words. And, and we see that moves, the words do mobilize people. I so I, I think we do have to call it supremacy and we do have to call it privilege. I, I agree with what Anna is saying to an extent. Definitely we need to call it white supremacy. But my problem is that if we are going to talk to people who have not been getting the same education that we have, then it's very difficult to talk to them about, this is not privilege, this is supremacy, you are a white supremacist, and accusing them of being part of a group they may be willy-nilly forced into. So that's why I'm advocating softer language or talking about other things that we hold in common so that we can make a segue into the difficult conversation about white privilege and white supremacy. And you're right. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that part of your argument, Deb. I think it's important that, that we appeal to bridges, especially those of us who have certain level of privileges, um, right? And especially those of us who are in positions where we get to educate other people and we have the responsibility of a classroom. I think it's important that we do have that empathy very clear and very present in our minds. The only thing I'm saying is, what has worked for me in my own classes with students who have not taken these kinds of courses is not erasing language. 
it is treating language right. in a way that does not personalize people. Mm, right, right. It's not saying you are ignorant. No, we're not doing that. We're saying we've been trained to think this way, mm -hmm. all of us, and this is why this is wrong. That's yeah, an excellent conversation. I, I thank you very much for, for both of you for sharing your views and for having that dialogue. Um, what about the role of religion? So this person wrote in and said, I saw many Jesus 2020 banners. I am definitely not the person for that. Um, yeah, so um, Donald Trump appeals to, has a strong appeal among the evangelical population in America. Um, it's not like they actually, well, some actually do believe that he is a, a die in the wool evangelical who loves Jesus, but more to the point, their uh, cultural issues that he frames up through his Supreme Court appointments or by some of his speechifying, I think is what, what makes um, evangelicals, which are a very strong core of individuals and who um, uh, remain uh, a very uh, um, important uh, base for the Republican Party, is um, this belief that he was going to carry the water for them. Uh, and then by having him pick Mike Pence, who is an open evangelical to the point that, yes, I know many of my colleagues would be uncomfortable with, um, but uh, for self-disclosure, I am also an evangelical. I, I'm a Lutheran. So um, uh, I understand the, the mentality. And I think that's the, the, the issue that's separating out the personality of Trump from religion has been something that the churches have not picked up on and have not been particularly good about. They have walked around or sometimes they've even supported going back to the moral majority, the rise of, um, uh, you know, um, focus on the family and Jim Dobson back in the 80s and 90s, who argued that Christians needed to be involved in politics because they were losing these privileges uh, and they were under attack and assault. I mean, the war on Christmas. So I think that politics is a really important motive here. Um, the, the attack on the Congress though, uh, ha may have led some to think twice and certainly uh, that remains to be seen. But I, I would imagine that Donald Trump remains uh, someone that many evangelicals are praying for uh, as we speak now, uh, very powerful. Um, role. Religion is, can, has in America always been uh, closely sort of different uh, um, ideologies, different politics, uh, and even, if you will, certain classes of individuals. So um, yeah, it's important to raise this question of religion uh, as, as a mechanism. What makes it so interesting is that um, in the Democratic Party, more and more people are not interested in religion whatsoever, or spirituality even. Uh, we call them the N-O-N-E-S or the nuns, and that number is growing uh, 25, 30% of Democrats. And one of the key differences between the two is if someone goes to worship uh, in uh, some form uh, once a week or more, they are probably going to be a Republican. So yeah, no, that's a, it's an important question. Um, and I think that's really something where the churches have work to do uh, that they haven't done so far. That's great. Thank you so much. Here's another comment. As educators, we may be right about our views on today's mighty issues, 
But if we want to inform and participate in positive change, we also have to do as Ruth Bader Ginsburg espoused, we have to bring people with us. And to do this, we have to be smart about ways which work and bring people with us and ways which don't. It is nuanced. Not everyone has the same American history. It's a huge country of immigrants who got here in a variety of ways. Let's be smart. It's more than important. It's more important than just being right. Um, another person wrote to ask about what the college is doing to address different political viewpoints while on co our college campus and other college campuses. How can we move towards coming together rather than further division? What steps can we take as a community to address these issues? Well, President Paul, that sounds like a great question. <laughs> Um, as a 501c3, uh, we are not in, in any way, shape, or form, we cannot endorse a political party. We have had student groups for years attempt to come together. Uh, in fact, just in the last couple of years, there was a, an attempt by nonpartisan students to form a club where they would talk politics, but without partisanship. Um, that it failed is probably a lot uh, to do with the fact that it's difficult to separate out worldview, which then becomes tied to identity politics and your, your thing. Certainly, we can have more forums, we can have more discussion, more debates, more time to sit together, uh, particularly as the pandemic uh, wanes and, and we can see each other in person and break bread. Uh, I think certainly some of the issues I heard today, structural problems, economic structures, these are things that I think both sides could agree need to be addressed. And um, I think that's where we could find common ground. Uh, I'd be interested to know what Deb Parna and uh, Anna think of this. Regarding what, Tim? Uh, regarding this question of, of um, recognizing the, the, the different uh, polit politics that exist on the campus and, and allowing a, a space for dialogue and uh, sort of an, an, an inclusion of these kind of discussions um, in, in a way that's probably safe and um, uh, so the people can bring their full selves, if you will, whether they're conservative or liberal or whatever to the campus. Yeah, part of the problem in America seems to me that we have two parties uh, which are ostensibly different from each other, but actually they're not. One is the party of the social conservatives and economic conservatives and the other part is that of economic conservatives but social liberals and you know what i'm talking about here so i think we can argue till morning about abortion and same-sex marriage and other social issues and come to no understanding on that we can talk about identity politics and come to no understanding on that but we don't want to look at the elephant in the room, which is the fact that 50 million people in America today are going hungry. We have a very high unemployment rate. There are millions of people who are who have no paychecks or are just one stimulus payment away from not being able to pay for their rent. So the country is in dire straits economically, while there are a few people like Jeff Bezos and others who are making oodles of money. I also use Amazon, so I'm guilty. But the problem is that as long as we don't tackle the problem of redistribution so that 
I'm not advocating a full scale change to socialism, but some kind of welfare state, unless we understand the arguments for and against welfare state, there's no way we can improve the situation in our society. Another comment that I think, I'm sorry, Tim. Uh, no, go ahead. I was just going to ask if Anna had any any comments on this. Anna, do you have? Uh, yeah, very briefly. I think um, number one, we have to. I worry. Like while I understand the importance of welcoming everybody, I also understand and I have very clearly identified who are the people who are traumatized and violented, and it's not always both sides. Number two, I as the a queer person in the room, I would like to queer politics as well and avoid binaries. It's not just conservatives and, and Democrats. It's just, there's such a broad spectrum on different kinds of policies. So I think we have to start having smarter conversations of that bigger spectrum as well. And number three, just to really work on detaching politics from identity. I think we are so married to identify ourselves as liberals or as leftists or as right wings or whatever that we almost have to be in agreement with everything that comes out of a party. And that's also not true. So I think that by stressing those three points, we can we can potentially um, build a welcoming and a just community. You know, there's a, an additional comment here um, that I think really poignantly addresses some of these dynamics. This person writes, I understand the importance of finding a middle ground but how do you respect and want to find that middle ground when I'm continuously shown that our lives are not being treated with the same fragility as their egos? So I think that expresses you know, what you all are, are talking about. We're, we're almost out of time here. And this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm, I'm very, very grateful to all of you to, um, for, for sharing your views and just engaging in open conversation. And I'm very grateful for everyone for contributing the questions and comments. You know, I think where, um, as educators, where we go is what do we do? Um, so what, what do we do? You know, what do you see as the role of higher education, as the role of our community in um, trying to find ways to move forward to being an inclusive democracy? I would just say, don't lose sight of the importance of education. Don't lose sight of where real injustice is. And don't don't sacrifice um, that side for for the sake of reaching broader audiences. It's their lives on the line and these lives are important. Thank you. Dev? I would say that we need to meet each person where they are. So it is important to be able to scale the empathy wall and build emotional bond with each person. Thank you. Tim? I would just say having more discussions like this, uh, look, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I, you know, I, I don't even know the right questions sometimes, but talking to, to my colleagues like Anna and, and Deb Parna and, and, and hearing your own reflections, President Paul, really um, helps me uh, as an educator do a better job in my own classroom. It makes me more aware, more conscious, and more equipped to approach situations. So I, I think partly as educators, we have to understand we continue need to be students. And then as we're students, we'll do a better job of meeting people where they are, and then remembering the fragility of some lives are not 
being treated equally in this society. Well, I have to say I'm very honored and grateful to be students with all of you, to, to be a student with all of you. And I, I feel that in this community. And I frankly think it's one of our greatest strengths is that we are willing to all be students. We are willing to all ask questions and to not know, but to think together and to pull in different perspectives and have that help us to find ways to move forward uh, in a world where everyone is included in this democracy, which to me, the events in our time, and I know that this goes back centuries, but that's what we're struggling with. And so I, I'm just, I'm so aware of that. And I am so grateful to all of you for taking the time to, to talking about this, you know, for everyone else to know, um, this was put together on a dime. And this is what we need to do in this community where we really do care about our world. We care about what is happening and it is our mission to care. It is our mission to uh, educate in a way that is connected in, in the real world, in, in all of its messiness and to uh, find our way through and to find our way to a better world. So for you all to agree so quickly to be part of this conversation and to have the, the courage and the curiosity and the commitment to uh, be willing to have this kind of conversation, I'm just so grateful to you. And I'm very much looking forward to other conversations with other groups of people in our community about the important things that are happening in our world. You know, as I reflect on what's happening today, it's pretty easy to feel overwhelmed. It's easy to feel uh, very disheartened in many ways. I have another way of looking at it, which is I think that complex times such as this and painful times such as this open new opportunities for us. I really do believe that the world is giving us opportunity to uh, shift, to make changes, to choose different ways. And it's striking to me that, you know, it just keeps on getting more and more. And so are we listening? Are we opening ourselves to that sense of possibility and change? Let's open ourselves to that sense of possibility and change. That's what Nazareth is all about and has been for almost a hundred years. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I wish all of you a wonderful new year, full of new possibility and full of positive change. Thank you all.